Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 140, recorded on March 22nd of 2021, the Photo Geekery Show, where I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, and, uh, well, we just kind of geek out. The name says it all. We geek out about photo stuff, usually once a week. Uh, and it's industry news, it's whatever comes down the, the pipeline of uh, updates, product announcements, ethical dilemmas, uh, legalese stuff that we try to distill, even though we're not lawyers. Thankfully, we don't have any of those stories this week, but uh, every week I do have a guest host, and this week is a very good buddy of mine, Joseph Lenashki, aka Photo Joseph, with us here today. Joseph, how have you been? It's uh, It's been a while since we've chatted last. It has been a while. I think the last time I saw you, you had gotten a haircut recently, so <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, and- that tells you how long it's been. <laughs> It has been. I don't know if it's been like 10 months or something, but uh, my, uh, my my wife cut my hair the last time during the pandemic. I bought some nice uh, hair cutting scissors off of Amazon and they have since disappeared. I think they're going to be found somewhere in my daughter's closet. She <laughs> likes to just grab things for crafts and, and who knows where they end up. Uh, so a new pair has been ordered. And the next time you see me, well, if I let it go 10 months from now, then it's going to be just the same as it has always been. But uh, right now, uh, yeah, it's pretty shaggy. You know, if I were to if I were to comb this backwards, it's going to be an afro. And, uh, and that's that's just what it's going to be. So <laughs> that could, that uh, until be I get a vaccine and I'm not uh, I'm not going up to the hairdressers. So that sounds reasonable to me. Yep. <laughs> how have you been over all this time? And uh, how's a life through the pandemic? But also, I mean, you're constantly busy. Uh, yeah. What keeps you busy these days? Yeah, it's it's been it's been very busy. You know, the pandemic has kept me from traveling, which is, of course, uh, as it has for pretty much all of us, is that's one of the big joys of my life that has gone from this. But I certainly can't complain because I have been incredibly busy with work. And that for that, I'm very, very fortunate and very grateful. But yeah, the work has been, you know, the YouTube channel has been growing nicely. Uh, YouTube.com slash photo Joseph. Subscribe and hit the bell. Uh, <laughs> the YouTube channel has been growing nicely. I've been doing a fair amount of commercial work, but all locally. Been doing work for uh, for variety of clients, you know, including Panasonic. Do a lot for them. I'm still an ambassador for them. And I do a variety of video content for them that is uh, all produced here in the studio. So it's been very busy just not leaving town. It's funny. We, My wife and kid and I, we just went to go explore some waterfalls this weekend. And it's the first time that we left the county in almost the entire year, if not the entire year. Like it's, we're driving going, whoa, we've been in the car for 15 minutes. We've officially been farther north than we've been in a year. Whoa. <laughs> It really takes you back to a simpler time of life where, you know, you you lived and died in the village you were born in. Kind of thing, right? <laughs> uh, which, I mean, I, I love travel, too. Yeah. Uh, you know, every every year we would typically go to uh, Bulgaria, where my wife's mm-hmm. originally from. And, uh, of course, we didn't do that last year. And I don't yeah. know if we're going to do that this year. But um, even just, like you said, going out to waterfalls, there's a whole bunch of them in our area. But even walking around the block right now, it's like, okay, let's go to the park. And it's just swarming with 50 children. Yeah, let's yeah, not. Let's not. Let's, yeah, it's so let's, hard. Let's, let's wait. Uh, come back some other time. And it, it is hard. Uh, it is. Thankfully, we've got a beautiful backyard and, and lots of things to play around with back there. But Where do you uh, put the still, odds of being fever. able to... Cabin yeah, fever. Cabin <laughs> fever. Absolutely. Where do you put the odds of being able to travel late summer? Uh, I don't know, because in Canada, uh, we're not going to be able to, like, the phase three vaccine rollout where anybody can register Mm -hmm. is not supposed to happen until July. Yeah. 
And uh, so that's when I can register to get a, a vaccine. And I'm not going to travel until I do. But at that point, I, I think it's going to be like, uh, have you ever tried to buy tickets to a concert, <laughs> a really popular concert? On, on like the second it goes live and the right. website is super sluggish because there's a million people trying to do the same thing that you're doing. Uh, and then by the time you actually add a ticket to your shopping cart or whatever right. and go to check out, they're completely sold out two yeah. and a half minutes later. Yeah. I got a feeling we might be in something similar. Uh, so I'm not holding my breath. But, you know, this past year, just like you, it, it's been pretty lucrative for you know certain projects certain ideas um and uh and i've been doing well but i i kind of want to get back to normal normal is something i miss now yeah yeah i'm with you on that i'm with you on that well let's get into some of our stories absolutely um and uh so a a big one for me this week and and i it's one of the reasons why i wanted to bring you on um was uh was from panasonic uh and they are bringing 5.9K Blackmagic RAW recording to the S1H and other features in the title, which is quite substantial, actually. It's not just uh, uh, something else. Uh, To the S1, S1R, S5, and BGH1 via firmware updates. Um, And number one, I I love to see firmware updates that add extra features and functionalities to cameras. I've always said that. Um, But some of these aren't just like your classic compatibility, bug fixes, etc. There's genuinely, uh, you know, improvements in the capabilities of equipment that you might already own when you're looking at some of this stuff. So um, I know you're familiar with this. Uh, You know, you, you may have had your hands on something by now. I'm not sure. But um, how do you feel about the, the S1H? Not only has it uh, had uh, Apple ProRes RAW recording on the uh, Atomos Ninja V for quite a while, and I've actually used that for some productions, mm-hmm. um, but I'm unfamiliar with the Blackmagic RAW and uh, and what that entails and how it's different uh, and why somebody might want that in addition to or in exchange of the, the Apple ProRes RAW. I think that just comes down to your preferred editing platform. If you're a Blackmagic Resolve editor, then you want B-RAW. That's, I think it comes down yeah. to as simple as that. Uh, ProRes is a Final Cut codec. And yeah, you can use ProRes inside of Premiere. Uh, I think there's a plug-in. For, I'm not totally sure how that works. I'm pretty sure you can use ProRes RAW inside of Premiere through some other You can hook. now, yes. Okay. But if you want to edit natively with ProRes RAW, then you're talking Final Cut. But if you're not a Final Cut Pro user, then, well, then now what? So you can convert. But of course, that's not the same. See, the whole point is to be RAW. So now Blackmagic RAW for Resolve Editors is fantastic. So it's a... It's great. I mean, that's a really, really great thing. It really opens it up to more more people who are shooting it. And I don't know, I don't know that anybody knows because neither company really discloses to the numbers, but how many raw, uh, sorry, how many Resolve editors there are versus Final Cut editors. And not talking about pro color correction, we all know where that lives. But for just straight up editing, um, I, I don't know what the numbers are, but I think it's awesome to have both. So yeah, super, super great to see that. And yeah, you know, uh, can you get resolved for free? Like, do they yeah. have a free tier within that? They so do. That, uh, that I think would uh, increase market share. Uh, yeah. Now, that's not to say that you're going to get all the features that you want, but right. it helps you get into the system. Uh, at which point, then, okay, well, you want to do this or that, you're going to have to start paying money. And the same thing uh, for Final Cut. I don't think it's expensive. What is it like, three hundred dollars? Yeah, or so? Final Cut's three hundred. There is no free tier of Final Cut, but you resolve absolutely. There's a free tier. I don't know exactly what you gain by paying for it, except uh, I think I think 10-bit is only in the paid version. 4K, I know used to only be in the paid version, but I kind of think you get that for free now, but don't quote me on that. 
And B-Raw, I don't know, again, because I'm not a Resolve editor, but B-Raw yeah. seems to me like the kind of feature that you would make people pay for. It seems pretty fair. But I, again, I, I don't know. I could be wrong on that. And you can't just record it internally, just like Apple ProRes right. Raw. You need an external recorder. In this case, they're stating the Blackmagic Video Assist 12G HDR is the one to get. There might be others. I'm not sure exactly what's in No, the I think that's the one. And that's basically, it's, it's like the Ninja 5. It's the same thing. It's a small five-inch recorder. Uh, with the PQ monitor, so you've got the really high quality, really high brightness monitor so that you can preview in PQ. So that's in HDR PQ while you're shooting, which is really cool. <laughs> it's pretty slick to be able to see your image in HDR on your screen while you're shooting. That is neat. And I, I've got a feeling that this is going to become more and more commonplace, just like I, I think Atomos hit it out of the park when they basically partnered with everybody mm -hmm. to get uh, raw output via HDMI to yeah. the uh, Ninja V, Ninja 5, whatever you want to call it. There was no Ninja 4, so I just call it a Ninja V. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, f from that perspective, if you have any, uh, you know, camera worth its, uh, worth its video chops, you can probably output uh, ProRes RAW uh, to a Ninja V, which is fantastic. I hope Blackmagic kind of does the same. And they're going to start with probably one of the flagship cameras like they've just done with the S1H. Right. And so we see that. But that's not to discount the new features that are coming into the S1 which um, I actually have an S1 that I converted to full-spectrum photography so that I could do some <laughs> really fun experiments with um, you know, ultraviolet reflectance and patterns that bugs can see in flowers and what have you. And I really want to get that camera back out. Uh, and now that the flowers are starting to bloom again, shoot mm. some really cool science-y video stuff. And I'll be able to do that in 6K on the <laughs> S1, which it was never marketed as. Yeah. But... You know, this kind of makes sense. If the S1H is getting all of these super pro features, including the Blackmagic RAW and all these other things, um, there's no reason why you can't give a little bit of extra love to the cameras a little bit below it. Bring them up as well. Not to the same level. I mean, we understand that there's a pricing structure and there's hardware differences and so on. Um, but uh, now that I can shoot 6K uh, with the, the Lumix S1, that really opens up some possibilities. Specifically in my use case, I have an S1H as well, right? I mean, I, and I do that, I use it for you know, production work. But that S1 is a really special camera to me. It does stuff that I couldn't do any other way, and now I can do it better, and I didn't have to pay anything extra yeah. for it. Hooray, right? Yeah, that is that is a great thing. And, and you, to your point about the ability to upgrade older hardware, obviously there's a pricing tier thing, and companies aren't going to cannibalize their newer, more expensive gear. But I think a point that you made that I want to reiterate uh, on is the hardware capabilities. I hear stuff a lot like, well, if they added RAW to this, why don't they put RAW on the GH5? Okay, the GH5 is three years old. There's no way that the processing engine in that can handle RAW output. So people like to complain, of course. People like to complain when they see a camera that they didn't buy get a feature that they don't get. But like you just said, no one ever told you you were going to get 6K. You did not buy the S1 because you thought, one day I'll get 6K on this. That was never a feature. So it's pretty great to get these things for free. And I think it's important for users to understand that some capabilities simply cannot be added to older hardware. The hardware just can't handle it. Right. And, and some of these features, they, they do involve you uh, having purchased the uh, dmw dash uh, sfu 2 uh, software upgrade for the S1, which 
if you had one early on like me, they were kind of giving them away just right. as an added incentive to purchase the camera. I think now that it, it has to be a, a paid upgrade. Um, and that would give you a, a dual native ISO uh, to right. the, the S1 as well. So more pro-level features, if you need them, they're going to be there. Um, and I just love that cameras, like I, I've had the S1 since launch, right? Yeah. And it's still getting better. And <laughs> the S1R got 5K video. I, I don't need... The, the crazy 6K stuff. I didn't buy the S1R for video, but the fact is that it's gotten better at it, and I'm happy about it. Right, um, absolutely. And, and one you, also get, you also get ProRes RAW. Oh, yes, you do. You, uh, you, don't, you don't get the Blackmagic RAW, <laughs> right, but you get the, the ProRes RAW. You get ProRes RAW on the S1 now, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I kind of saw that coming because they added it to the S5, uh, and when they did that, I was thinking, well, why does the S5 get it and the S1 kind of, uh, kind of the, the bigger brother be left out? And well, so it's, I, but I it's not the bigger brother. And that's an important thing is that the S5 is not a bigger brother. The S5 is more like a little brother to the S1H, not to the S1. The True. S5 is yeah, a video-focused camera where, while it's still a fantastic still camera, of course, but it is its feature set is really more about video like the S1H. It's, it's, think of it like a baby S1H. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I'm looking at the firmware updates because I do love my S1R. I shoot with it all the time. It only gets a minor little bit of polish, but <laughs> I was kind of smirking because one of them, uh, minor updates, um, only changes being the inclusion of the new camera orientation function and a power saving mode. But uh, camera orientation was always on by default and it was non-configurable. It just was what it was, right? You put the camera in a portrait mode, it detects it, it's in a portrait mode, horizontal, etc. Um, but I had a, uh, a colleague of mine that uh, borrowed one of my cameras to shoot it in the belly of an airplane which is perfectly down. Right. Right? And the footage kept coming back, flipped back and forth, back and forth. Oh, because interesting. the sensor doesn't know what to do when it's perfectly straight down. Uh, and so it was really, really troublesome uh, for my colleague in order to get that footage. And I put a little uh, a note into, into Panasonic's ear at that time. This was a while back. And now I see a feature that allows me to turn off the orientation function. Uh -huh. I, I wonder if I had anything to do with that. Maybe you might not, have. But I, but I, I feel vindicated that, <laughs> I, uh, that when I complain about something, it actually comes to fruition and there's a fix at some point in the future. A camera company that listens to, uh, to their photographers, I think, is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. With, well, with any big company like that, no matter how close you are to the company, when you make suggestions like that, you, you know you're probably not the only one. But when that feature does hit, you're like, yeah, that was mine. I, I, I get to take credit for it. I get it. That's mine. <laughs> I'll do it. No, no, nobody else. That I, I hadn't heard anybody else complain about it. So it's yep. all me. So it must be you. Uh, <laughs> it must be you. Hey, you know, the power save thing. Are you familiar with what that is and why that's there? And if not, I actually would like to go into it because it's, uh, it's an important thing for a small subset of users. Please do. And it's, it's one of those things that I might have utilized in some shoots, possibly uh, doing time lapse or camera, uh, camera trap stuff, but uh, I might have missed the use case on it. So it is, it is designed for camera trap users. So it's interesting that you use that, that use case, but I'll bet you're still not taking advantage of it. So um, most pre-S series cameras, if you wanted to hook up the camera to the wall, plug it into AC power, then you got a dummy battery. Right, one of those things that plugs in and replaces the battery, plug that into the wall. On all the S-Series cameras, you can power them with USB. 
So when you were using it in a situation like this, how are you powering your S-series camera? With USB or with a dummy I battery? I do have the AC adapter uh, dongly thing with the fake battery and it plugs in. Do and, you? And so I, I've had those um, for, for quite a while. Uh, and then I just buy the adapter. Cause I, I had them for my uh, GH and GX right, series cameras. Right, right. But for the S-series cameras, are you using one of those dummy batteries or are you using USB-C to power it? Dummy battery. Really? Okay, so you're the one. Well, I mean, I already had the AC adapter, so the dummy battery is like, well, I, I don't want to take this investment that I had spending money on this AC adapter module thing and just throw that away. I, I'd feel guilty about that. So, yeah, I bought the dummy battery, Joseph. And, Interesting. And I'm okay. still using that. So. Okay, I'm, I figured somebody had to buy it. I didn't know who it was. All right, so it's you. All right, I, good. It's all me. Well, so here's, here's the deal. When you plug in a dummy battery, the camera knows that it is on a dummy battery and it just assumes that it's being plugged into the wall. And so therefore, its sleep modes go away. It never goes to sleep, which is how you would expect to use a camera like that in dummy battery position. You don't ever want it to go to sleep. You plug it into the wall, you want it always on. But there is a, a subset of users, specifically using camera traps, where they're using the dummy battery, but they're not plugging it into a wall because it's in the middle of nowhere. They're plugging it into some kind of custom battery pack. Instead of using USB-C battery, right. battery pack, they're, I don't know if they're building their own, maybe they got 20 car batteries, whatever, but they have a way to plug the AC plug into a battery pack. The problem there is if the camera never goes to sleep because the camera thinks it's plugged into the wall, it'll drain your batteries. And so this now right. gives users the option to make the camera go to sleep, even though it's using that dummy battery, quote unquote, AC adapter. Um, the one caveat there is that you need to be aware if you set it to that, when you plug in your uh, when you do plug it into the wall, knowing that it is going to potentially go to sleep if you have set it to go to sleep. So if this you're using true, it as a right. webcam, so you can turn that off. right, so you can toggle it now. Um, so if you're using it as a webcam, for example, you go from camera trap mode to webcam mode, and you're just plugging it into the wall, you don't want your camera to go to sleep in the middle of your show, in the middle of your event. So you just need to be aware that that option is now there and be aware of the setting. So anyway, it's a specific use case. Uh, you were almost there as somebody who used it. And, uh, and I just wanted to make sure that people are aware of it. There we go. You know, like when I've got my camera set up in my studio, uh, last time I used the, the battery uh, or the, uh, the the dummy battery was when I was photographing some uh, uh, crystal formations, some okay. uh, citric acid that was uh, the water in the citric acid mixture was evaporating and these beautiful crystals were forming on a plate of glass uh, over a long period of time. Uh, we're talking multiple hours. And uh, it's in a cross-polarized microscope setup, and so it's not just crystals growing, it's like rainbow crystals just launching themselves across the frame very, very slowly. Wow. And it was so cool. Um, but I couldn't depend on the camera's internal batteries, even though it does kind of go to sleep and then wake up. I had no idea how long this was going to take. It, uh, it turned out to take, you know, five or six hours. I didn't know if it was going to take five or six days. Right, right. Uh, so you don't want to take that risk of saying, okay, well... That didn't work uh, and, and waste a whole day of shooting because you just you know, ran out of battery juice. Yep. Um, so what, uh, what are any of these features <laughs> things that you will use? Ooh, um, well, I certainly, I'm not going to shoot B-RAW because I'm a Final Cut editor, so I'm, I'm good with the ProRes RAW. The S1, let's see here. Um, I'm unlikely to shoot 6K on the S1, but only because I've got on the S1H and the S5, but that's just me. The rotation things definitely not. That's that's never affected me. So it's an interesting use case. Your the airplane scenario, um, but that's definitely not something that I have uh, encountered. So there's that. On the BGH one though, 
Oh, yeah, we didn't talk about we that. We didn't talk about that. The update for that with the IP streaming, that is very, very interesting. To be able to live stream from the camera directly, I think that is super, super cool. So that's a feature so that with, I would with the uh, with the PC port, so that's just a connection to the computer directly, because I know that camera also has an Ethernet jack, right? It does. So this is not using that. This is connecting to a, a, a computer. Um, uh, maximum 4K 60, uh, 60p uh, in H.265 at 50 megabits per second. The additional options for uh, 4K 30, uh, Full HD 60, Full HD 30. Uh, and uh, it has enabled ProRes RAW recording over HDMI, again with the Ninja V uh, on the BGH-1. I l- that, that camera, I have no direct immediate use for. <laughs> Yet I still very much want. So, yeah, the BGH1 is my, let's call it like my new favorite camera. I want them everywhere in my studio. I want to replace all of my cameras in the studio with BGH1s. They're just, it's an awesome camera. The ability to yep. control it over software from, and to control, control groups of them over software from your computer, so cool. It's just, it's an awesome piece of hardware. And, and again, the, the ability to do that is so like it, it's it's game changing for some people. I don't need to control six of them right. in some conference setting and, and right. so on and so forth where uh, you cannot actively go and press buttons on the device, but you can have a master control system where everything is perfectly displayed. So, you know exactly where everything is um, uh, that, you know. That's replacing millions of dollars of equipment uh, to have to have this option now available uh, on these camera bodies. So it, when I say game changer, I know it's an overused term, but but for certain people, this really very much yeah, is. It is. It's it's an awesome a little camera. Love it. Love mine. And let's get into the next story then, because okay. uh, as much as we talk about uh, you know Panasonic and we can fawn over that particular brand, there are other camera brands. There are, uh, but some, but but some of them, and, and this is. This is interesting because Hasselblad, Mm. we're going to be talking about Hasselblad here. Uh, F-Stoppers article, what is happening over at Hasselblad, question mark, by um, Wasim Ahmad. And, uh, you know, Hasselblad has a pedigree. Mm-hmm. They put cameras on the moon, medium format cameras. And that, when people think about Hasselblad, that might be one of the things that you think about. Their sure. heyday of those really well-engineered, almost mechanical pieces of art themselves yeah. cameras. Yeah. Um, now, they don't do that anymore. Uh, they have medium format digital cameras, sure, but that market was shrinking. Uh, and so too was their profits. And they ended up being bought by DJI, the drone manufacturer, the Chinese company. And so now they're owned by them. And uh, they've done some things in the past that uh, they, they took Sony cameras and branded them Hasselblad with names like Stellar and Lunar. And nobody bought it. <laughs> um, I, I mean, the, the a few people might have bought the actual cameras, but I don't think anybody really, truly right. uh, took to heart the concept. Uh, and in some ways, Leica has done this in the past, too, where you have some cameras that are very, very similar to Panasonic cameras, but with a Leica brand and different software in it. Uh, and, you know, if you have a Leica M-series camera, uh, even back to the film days, I mean, it it is a Leica device. It has right. that classic signature look and feel. And a Hasselblad camera, I think, uh, you know, at least in the film era, had that same sure. uh, um, gravitas. I, I don't know how else to describe yeah. it, but it it had it had the the, the feel, the look, the heft, the the design. Um, do you think that translates at all to a smartphone? <laughs> uh, 
Look, if my uh, smartphone starts to weigh as much as a Hassie, then uh, then we have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I, and I'll, I'll say that Hasselblad is not the first company to partner with a phone manufacturer no. to put their uh, their name on a uh, on a phone. Um, but here we're looking at the the OnePlus Nine uh, Hasselblad camera. So the camera on this is going to be branded Hasselblad. Uh, and tech YouTuber uh, Dave Lee uh, in this article here, I'll just read from it briefly breaks down what they really mean uh, in a video that takes a hard look at the hardware and software powering the new camera in the phone. Uh, At its core, the sensor is manufactured by Sony. Uh, And the optics, well, who knows who actually made them, but, you know... It's probably not Hasselblad uh, that uh, that made the the actual lens. And I'm just guessing there. It's a total guess on my part. But, um, you know, then they say, well, it boils down to maybe the color science that Hasselblad might have a hand in. But they're traditionally not much of a software company. You know, they don't have their, their fingers in, in, in all of those uh, areas, unlike uh, Phase 1, where they have Capture 1 and so on and so forth. Hasselblad mm-hmm. doesn't have that same parallel. Sure. Uh, so it's a $150 million partnership between the two companies, between OnePlus and Hasselblad. Uh, and... Is it just to put the Hasselblad name on it? I just I can't imagine what Hasselblad is bringing to the table aside from the good uh, sort of the the good history of their name, which doesn't translate at all into this product. Yeah, no, it is kind of a dumbing down of the brand. It's a shame to see, and I can imagine that somewhere along the way, they somebody in there said this is a good idea because it gets our name out there, and even if it does some damage to the brand. On the higher end, at least more people will be aware of us and know that we're still around. It's hard to really understand the real value of that, though. No smartphone, no matter how good it is, is anywhere near approaching what a real Hasselblad would be. Not even close. And it's just... It, it's, it's, it's not even apples and oranges. It's apples and grenades. I mean, <laughs> entire, entirely different purposes for these devices, right? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. So it's, it is kind of a shame. Um, and yeah, if anybody's buying it because they think they're buying a true Hasselblad, it's like, well, okay. <laughs> it's not yeah, a Hasselblad. Well, uh, yeah. So it, it has happened again. We have a, a, a classic camera brand uh, being put on a smartphone. And I mean, great if that helps their market share and, uh, and exposure. But, you know, I, I do think that their ownership by DJI um, might sway the attention towards smaller cameras uh, and smaller optics. Because, you know, if you want to have drone systems, drone camera systems that have a Hasselblad name on it, then those will inherently be much smaller than your classic medium format camera. Sure. Um, uh, or even they did do a box camera thing as well. Uh, I, I do remember that. But uh, I think the the market is uh, is going for those smaller cameras, and Hasselblad needs to adapt their brand to not be necessarily just in that medium format space anymore. How can they do that in a way that doesn't look like they just slap their name on? Wait a minute, they're just doing that. Yeah. And the drone, the uh, what is it, the Mavic 2, is a Hasselblad, or it has the Hasselblad name on its camera. It's the, the bigger camera than the other Mavic. And, you know, again, is it really? How much is it? How much is really there that's Hasselblad? Yeah, it's tough. It's no it's longer tough. this, uh, you know, uh, pragmatic and stoic Swedish camera company. Uh, it's now a name that is being thrown about onto a number of different products uh, that... I mean, they, they might uh, keep the same vision, in a sense, but 
the same thing is true of the Kodak brand, which you can yeah. find on so many different things right now that are not really true to the brand. Same thing for a time uh, was true of Polaroid. Now, I don't think Hasselblad is nearly as far down as those other two brands I just mentioned, <laughs> um, but I do worry that it's a slippery slope. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway. Not going to get an argument from me there. There we go. But let's talk. Let's take a look at that pedigree. You know, if you have that old Hasselblad medium format camera and it needs a little bit of TLC, a CLA, as they would put it, a clean lubrication and adjustment um, as uh, old cameras, you know, should probably undergo if they're being taken out of the box for the first time in a decade or two. <laughs> Who do you bring it to, uh, Joseph? Because I... Uh, I used to have this guy in town, Brian was his name, and he had this old camera store uh, above a convenience store. And, uh, you know, he would, his business for the last 20 years that he was in business was just fixing uh, cameras. And it ended up being that he was just fixing old stuff because the new stuff was more expensive to fix than it was to buy a new one. Mm. Uh, and so the old mechanical film cameras, I brought him a couple. In fact, he, uh, he even fixed an old 11 by 14 uh, lens wow. for, for my ultra-large format camera. Uh, and he did a pretty good job of it, but he's since retired. He's been mm. retired for eight years now, and there's nobody around me that could look at any of this equipment and make heads or tails of it. And I wouldn't trust it to just anybody, right? Right. So... I came across this article on DP Review. Uh, camera Rescue opens repair school in bid to fix the world's film cameras. <laughs> I know film uh, photography has had a bit of a resurgence. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it's not massive, but it stopped its decline, right? Uh, but nobody's really making significant waves with new film cameras. There's been a few, a few Kickstarter campaigns. There's one right now for a stereoscopic 3D camera that you can build yourself out of MDF. Um, <laughs> and they'll sell some because I bought one if they are successful in their campaign. But not many people are going to be going down that road. You're much more likely to go through uh, an old box of junk and find your grandpa's old AE1 and think, huh, maybe this still works. Sure. Uh, and then you got to send it off to somebody. Who would you send it off to, Joseph? Well, okay. I, I'm you know, not answering the right question or giving you the right answer, I would use, there's a service called <laughs> camerarepair.com that I've used for cleaning and uh, de-clicking and re-greasing lenses. I like to buy vintage oh, cool. old lenses from eBay and quite often they're a bit, you know, they've been around for a while, they're a little bit stiff or you just want the aperture de-clicked. So yeah, they've, uh, shout out to them, they have done some stellar work on a, on a fair number of my vintage lenses. So I would start there, but I have no idea whatsoever if they repair old film cameras. I, I don't honestly know if they do. So that tells me so, that there's some a market for somebody else. <laughs> and I think you're going to tell me who it is. <laughs> I believe so. You know, we'd have to go to Finland for this one. Um, and uh, so uh, Camera Rescue claims to be the only film camera repair school in the world. Mm -hmm. And says the company behind the program, uh, Camera Tori Oi, uh, needs more staff to deal with the growing number of camera repairs that it's dealing with. So far, Camera Rescue has serviced or repaired, uh, serviced, repaired, or inspected over 100,000 cameras since it began 10 years ago. And 25,000 of those were in 2020 alone. Wow. I'm guessing, again, everybody's stuck at home and was digging right. through their closets and doing their cleaning, and, and they found those old cameras. That's so, a, how, many, um, how many was that again? How many in 2020? 25,000 in 2020 wow. alone of the 100,000 that, they, uh, that they've looked at in the past decade. So, wow. a 
That's a quarter of them <laughs> in that last year. That, it's a significant increase. So um, they're looking, uh, you know, in early uh, April of 2021, a team of eight talents, they say, will start a four-month training on the basics of film camera testing and maintenance um, in uh, Tampere in partnership with TAKK, the Tampere Adult Education Center and local unemployment office. Because you can get uh, unemployment benefits while you're going through this educational process. So you don't pay for this education. You're basically making yourself a qualified employee for the company once you're on the other end of it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I guess they tried to recruit people that knew how to repair these cameras and there was nobody. Wow. Uh, so in order to expand your business, they had to do a fairly novel thing and train people from the ground up directly into the business because there was no other school to train people f to create a pool of potential employees for you to grab at. So you have to make your own. Um, and, uh, and they say that there's uh, an extended process where you can uh, go through additional education and become even more qualified uh, as time goes on. And if you're within Finland, then, uh, you know, kudos to you. You have the ability to just kind of sign up for it. If you're outside of Finland uh, due to pandemic restrictions, then you'll have to wait for the next round. And they are predicting that there will be uh, based on their growth metrics that they're currently seeing. Well, good for so, them. yeah, I mean... <laughs> I've had some cameras. Like I've got um, uh, a bunch of a bunch of old cameras. One of my favorite old cameras, and we're talking old. It's circa 1926. Um, is a uh, a rolidoscope. It is a stereoscopic 3D medium format camera. Uh, in fact, this is where Roli got their name because their very first camera from the company uh, Frankie and Heideke um, was the uh, the Heideskope. And instead of standard roll film that we're used to, it had a sheet film magazine on the back that you would just go ch chunk and flip to the next sheet and you could only hold a few of them and, and so on. Um, but roll film was taking over. So they made a roll film version of the Hydoscope and they called it the Rolidoscope, <laughs> which then carried on. And that's where the Roli name came from, from this yeah, very uh, vintage 1920s uh, stereo 3D camera. And... And so, yeah, I'm full of useless knowledge. But the, <laughs> uh, the, this camera of its vintage, it's not going to just work uh, out of the gates. You know, right. there's uh, uh, springs and things that wear out over time. And if you've ever tried to pick up an old camera and use a slow-ish shutter speed, it's just not going to work. Right. Uh, uh, and so you have to get those things taken apart, maybe some things replaced. If people aren't familiar with cameras of a certain manufacturer of a certain vintage uh, or the repair facility just doesn't have a collection of old and broken cameras that they can scavenge parts from, which uh, weirdly enough is how a lot of these things were fixed for a period sure, of time. Sure, absolutely. Um, then you'll have a really hard time finding the necessary knowledge and parts to put it back together properly. So great to know that companies are doing this. Uh, now, it doesn't really help me much because I have way too many vintage cameras. <laughs> I, I am not going to get every one of them properly serviced. And, uh, I, I, you know, there's the occasional few. And so they might get some of my money. But um, uh, it's great to know that, that, that there will be more people trained, hopefully at a younger age now, that will carry on and be these, um, I don't know, these elders of camera repair in the future, where there might be this very elite group of maybe 20 people across the planet that actually know how to service these things properly. 
No, it's great. I think it's, I'm glad that they're doing it. It's totally worth it. It's great to have people that can handle these things. And, you know, you may not need many of them, but it's awesome that that service is there. It's some of these old cameras, they're works of art. And when they're gone, they're gone. No one's making these oh, anymore. You know, and, and the, the Relitoscope that I have, somebody actually did some very unusual uh, modifications to, mm. and it just makes me love this camera so much more. Uh, on the back side of it, they actually put glass uh, where there wasn't any in order to make the film stay completely flat to, uh, uh, to the film plane. Um, and they even took it apart and they added a PC sync port to a camera wow. from 1926. Wow. So that when you trigger uh, the shutter, it will actually fire a flash. <laughs> and uh, I, I took it apart to real, to, just to figure out, okay, well, how the heck did they do this? And it looks like, um, I don't know, taking apart a vintage watch, all the gears and levers and stuff. But it looks like the, the modification that they made looks like it came from the factory that way. They were wow. an expert at this type of thing. And so I hold on to this with uh, uh, quite a bit of, um, I don't know, admiration. And uh, I, I, even if I rarely ever shoot film anymore, this is one of those cameras I always go to. And, That's nice. And I have That's beautiful. With. Right on. Oh, too cool. Anyhow. Um, but that kind of brings me to the, the, the passion projects, the, the success and failures of, of, you know, sort of what we are as, as photographers, uh, into our final story, which I found on Petapixel, uh, from Joey J, the art of accepting failure as an artist. And I don't want to necessarily say that that's all this article is about, but, um, as anybody starts out in, in any artistic field, uh, you know, you're going to have delusions of grandeur. Uh, I'm pretty sure everybody does, right? Like you're going to uh, take that camera that you spent good money on. You're going to go out. You're going to take an image that everybody's going to like just fall over to buy copies of. And, uh, and you're going to retire on a yacht uh, when you're in your mid forties, right? <laughs> Am I the only one? I, I, does everybody have this uh, idea? I, mean, I didn't get into this business to retire young, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> And then you quickly realize, well, you're walking in the footsteps of a million other people. And in order to stand out, you have to uh, either make some significant progress in, in marketing or do things so off the beaten path that nobody's ever done before. Um, it's rare that I, I hear somebody in any photographic circles, uh, you know, pull me aside and say, hey, Don, you got to check out this landscape photographer's work. Well, I almost never hear that. Yeah, you know, there's other industries, sure, but everybody kind of gravitates towards landscape photography to begin with, and everything has been shot and shot and shot again. But uh, somebody pulls me aside and says, "Take a look at this landscape photographer who lights all of his nightscapes with drones." Uh, then I might be interested, right? Because you've got a, a new new approach to it. But I find that most photographers get stuck in this um, pool of mediocrity. Whether or not they're better, um, it's just so hard to get beyond this, uh, this sort of white noise of everybody taking pictures. And you, yours might mean something to your family and your friends, but to gain notoriety beyond that is truly difficult, more so now than I believe it's ever been. Um, and that can be discouraging in a word. To a lot of people, uh, have you felt this way that you're just kind of in a in a slump at any point in your career that you, you know your work wasn't truly standing out? And if so, what did you do about it? I think for me, the way that I kind of crafted my career was to partially to try to avoid that problem. I don't, 
I never set out to be a single type of photographer, like say a wedding photographer, a landscape photographer, a portrait photographer. That was never my objective. For me, it was more about being a photographer and then being a filmmaker, content creator, you know, the labels that we use today. But it was never about doing any one specific thing because I know myself, I know that I get bored easily. I know that if I've got, if I'm doing the same type of photography, whatever it would be, no matter how exciting it is, no matter how well-paying it is, if I keep doing the same thing over and over again, I'm just going to get bored with it. And so I've, I've accepted that I will never be the best X, the best wedding photographer, the best landscape photographer, the best of any of those in the world, because that's not how I've dedicated my life. And I'm fine with that. I'm good at a lot of different types of photography. But I think because of that mindset, I don't look at other work and say, oh, they're better than me, which, you know, that I could say, but I don't say they're, look, they're better than me. I'm going to stop shooting that. I'm going to give up on that because I'm not going to be that good. Well, my goal isn't necessarily to be that good, the best at any of those things. So I don't particularly worry about it that way. Um, I think it's just a mindset that I've set for myself, again, knowing who I am and knowing that I will get bored easily and I need to keep myself jumping from thing to thing to keep myself engaged in whatever I'm doing. Yeah, and, and I kind of see that in, in myself, but also in my daughter, uh, who's <laughs> nearing five years old. And today she drew uh, a rainbow mouse. So it's a rainbow. <laughs> Made with like brown and black fur colors, and on the end of the ends of the rainbow are paws, and somewhere in between is like a face and a nose and things like that. And I'm thinking, that is just creative beyond my ability. I would have never <laughs> thought to have drawn a rainbow mouse, and you know, I I want to encourage that. I mean, sure, she's probably not going to have any type of a career in art, uh, and and she might. I, I don't want to say no to that. Uh, I mean, I've have a career in art, but I I know how difficult that is. Uh, and, uh, but, but I see that spark in just about everybody at, uh, at a young age. Oh, sure. And, uh, if, if we don't encourage it, then it could never become something, but so often it just turns into, okay, well that was fun. Now let's, you know, get a real job, uh, kind right. of idea. And I guess one of the best things for me to have become a professional, um, uh, photographer, really didn't have as much to do with the photography element of things, but with my educational background in advertising. Uh, because I you know, taught me how to be an entrepreneur, a small mm -hmm. business person, how to market myself and, and so on. Um, and once that became uh, viable by extreme measures, like 100 hour weeks and so on in, in the early days, uh, not a lot of sleep then, well, not a lot of sleep now anyhow. <laughs> uh, but uh, in, in those days, it was, okay, build a brand uh, and focus all of your energies on that. And as soon as that becomes sustainable, then you can eat, sleep, and breathe your art. Mm -hmm. uh, and you got to really kind of wear both of those hats at the same time. The, the, the marketer, the content creator, uh, the, the person that engages the audience in that particular kind of artwork that you're creating. And then you can create more and be so enthusiastic, not just in photography, but in uh, in writing, uh, in verbal engagements and speaking engagements. Uh, you know, you have to kind of be this multimediographer, uh, in a sense. You, you have to cover all of those bases uh, and then most people still don't succeed. I, I consider myself very lucky to, to be where I am and 
yeah, I, I owe it to snowflakes, honestly, as <laughs> silly as that sounds. And I did some early series uh, of, of snowflakes uh, that gained a lot of popularity on Google+. Plus. Remember that, oh, that yeah. was a thing? Oh, yeah. Um, and I had over a thousand or a, a million followers on Google+, 1.3 million followers. And wow. That helped my first book get launched and so yeah. on. And there were some lucky breaks along the way. And, you know, the luckier you are, uh, or sorry, the, the harder you work, the luckier you are. But sure. the luckier you are, um, the more opportunities you have to work harder. Yeah. And so those those two things kind of run in tandem. And it's it's not just going to say, if you shoot it, they will come. That I don't think that's ever really been the case, unless you were the very first person in your town with a camera. <laughs> yeah, true enough. Fair enough. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, everybody's got their own career path. But kind of back to the topic at hand of failure, you know, there's a thing in education circles of celebrating failure, and I think it's very, very important to understand the benefit of failure and to not be afraid of it. And it's okay to try, fail, and then try again, because you learn so much by doing that. You learn by failing, and you learn a lot more when you fail than if you just try something and it works out perfectly. Then that kind of shows argue, that you already know everything. You already knew true. what you needed. Uh, but, but I would argue that it's not a failure if you've learned something from it. It's a mistake. And you can well, sure, but I mean, mistakes. if your objective was to achieve a specific goal and you don't achieve that goal, then you effectively failed at achieving that goal. But if you learn things along the way that will help you to succeed the next time you try or at least get you closer, then that's it. I mean, you know, look at, say, SpaceX rocket launches. All those explosions, those are failed rocket launches. Those uh, rapid, unscheduled deconstruction of rockets are um, there to a degree. It's a failure to launch. But they learn so much every time they do it. And sometimes they know it's going to fail on launch. They know it's going to explode. But they still got to do it because they're going to learn a whole bunch. And eventually you get to well, the exactly. point where Exactly. Well, the thing some goes. of them were, I, I wouldn't call it failures to all of them. I know that at least in one case, they uh, overpressurized things to the point where it would fail to see where that point of failure was going to right. be. And right. their goal was for it to explode. <laughs> right. And therefore, they succeeded. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I think that's kind of what they're doing in Chernobyl, but this time the resorts weren't quite as <laughs> catastrophic. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. But uh, I, I live by that mantra of, yeah. of reveling in my mistakes. Okay. And I think that it, it's not just a photo mistake that I might make. It, it could be a marketing mistake. It might, might be, okay, well, that email that I sent to this particular client, I probably shouldn't have worded it that way. <laughs> uh, and then I might have lost some business as a result of that. No, I've learned uh, uh, along the way quite a bit about uh, you know client handling and and so on but um, it is a forever learning process yeah. and it's also one of the reasons why I don't think I'll ever retire because you're always creative I, I might do less jobs for money uh, especially mm -hmm. jobs that I don't want to do over time yeah. um, but uh, you know so long as you enjoy what you do it really doesn't feel like work which is why I'm only doing 10 snowflake images this year, because it really starts to feel like work after I've done so many hundreds, yeah. if not over a thousand of them by now. Yeah, I understand. I understand. Yeah. But I still love to, to shoot and be creative and play with different things. Like I was uh, mentioning you know, some of my uh, affection for stereoscopic 3D, which... Um, you know, I've got some uh, accoutrements, some puzzle pieces that I'm putting together, and one of them is my pick of the week. But mm. before we get to picks, okay. um, I want to hear more about where people can find you online. Did I hear correctly to state that uh, that, that you were uh, putting some of your live streams on a different YouTube channel? Correct. So, yeah, so my YouTube channel has been Photo Joseph forever. And interesting history there. So my channel was all live in the beginning. That's 
every show I did was a live show. And then through the history of interesting events, how's that go? The curious uh, events, the whatever that, you know, I'm talking about the history of, cur- no, what is it? The, the Lemony Snicket's thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Curious. Uh, I can't. Series I can't of the words. Lem- series of series of unfortunate events. That's yeah. I think that's what it was, and that pretty much yeah. describes it, a series of unfortunate events that include including me getting banned from YouTube Live for three months. My channel evolved into a edited video platform, and then once I could do live again, I was doing live, but it just didn't have the same pull that it used to. And through years of looking at the algorithm and trying to figure out what's going on with your own channel. I kind of determined that the live shows were largely hurting the non-live shows. And so what I've done now is created a whole separate channel. It's just Photo Joseph Live. So this whole separate channel, that's where all the live shows go. And on that channel, I don't have to care about metrics. I can just do a live show and whoever's there is there. If it gets a million views afterwards or one view afterwards, it just doesn't matter as far as the metrics go. I don't care because it's what I care about on the metrics are the recorded, edited, and uploaded shows. Those are the ones where I care about that. So it just gives me a little bit more flexibility if I want to just spontaneously go live. I don't have to think about how it's going to affect the algorithm because it's one too many live shows or it's not enough live shows. It just doesn't matter anymore. So that's why I did that. So yes, for anybody who has experienced the live shows before, Excuse me, please do search for Photo Joseph Live. I don't have a short URL yet because I, I, well, I've got enough subscribers on there now, but they haven't opened that up to me yet. The joys of a brand new channel. You have to wait for all of these uh, little pieces to come into place. But for now, whenever I do go live, I am simultaneously pushing it live to my main channel with a big graphic overlay and the chat turned off that says, don't watch it here, proper link down below. And then I just delete it immediately afterwards. And I'll do that for probably another month or so before I just kill that entirely. Cool. Well, uh, we'll make sure to put a link to both uh, you. of your channels in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. Uh, we can also find you on various social media platforms as well, where you opine about all things uh, from exercise to cooking to photography and so many things in between, right? That is correct. See, look, you have been following me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. If you want to see barbecue pictures, uh, Twitter and then the Instagram stories is a good place for that. I've actually been I kind of re-resurrected my Instagram. I hadn't posted on it for a year because... I mostly post travel and obviously we haven't traveled. So what I've been doing now is I have a system in place where I'm posting a new photo every day and their series, their sequences. There was the, the first series was a trip to South Korea several years ago. The current series is a spring, uh, a winter to spring progression. And on the first day of spring, there was, you know, the glorious first day of spring photo and, and that's going for another couple of weeks and then we'll kick into a new series, but just kind of resurrecting Instagram photo Joseph there, of course, trying to get, uh, Trying to get that back up and running again. There's so many Me things too. to do. So Me many too. places I, to post. I, I was in such a funk for a lot of the pandemic. And yeah. I, I, I was creating some content, but I wasn't necessarily posting it because when I sat down to try and, and, and write something, I'm thinking, the little voice in my head says, Don, write your book. <laughs> and so I'd sit down and I'd start working on that. And then, you know, social media got neglected for a significant amount of time. And, yeah. uh, and now I'm just getting back into that. And, and it, it's re-energizing me in a way. Like, because w- when somebody says that they like a photo, I mean, it's not, it's a little pat on the back. It, it, it doesn't really mean much to me. But when people start asking me questions about it, right. uh, when, uh, when people say that I've inspired them in some way and they give some meaningful response, that uh, it's, it's just kind of sharing that goodness, those, yep. the, those good vibes, as it were. Um, they're they're kind of coming back a little bit here and Absolutely. there. Absolutely. St- still got that cabin fever going on, uh, but starting to return back to normal a little bit now that I can start posting things and getting some feedback. And 
And, and I really appreciate when people ask questions that say, you know, Don, why didn't you try this or that? Or mm. may, maybe yeah. next time, have you, have you considered doing this? Or uh, why do you do it this way? And, and I had a moment a couple of days ago when somebody asked me that. It was just in an email. But, and I thought, uh-huh. Why am I doing it that way? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's other ways. To, I just I settled on this to, uh, in the beginning. And, yeah. and so I've, I've got some new ideas uh, coming Good. down uh, for oh, some exciting. new photo shoots. So it'll be fun. Um, but let's get into the picks of the week. And sure. one of the ideas that I have uh, that I've been inspired with in the last little while uh, is, you know, I, I've got a lens, uh, the, uh, the uh, Lumix um, uh, 12.5 millimeter 3D lens, which is much lamented by the engineers that made it and the people that marketed it uh, <laughs> at, uh, at Panasonic, I'm sure, because it didn't sell very well. Um, but it actually makes a pretty good macro lens. And traditionally, in order to make it a macro lens, I would have had to have uh, taken off the metal uh, mount of the lens from the plastic body of it and uh, put some washers underneath uh, where the screws are, and then it, that would separate the, uh, the, the lens mount plate just slightly enough to function as an extension tube to convert it into a macro lens. Mm -hmm. But you lose a certain amount of a stereo window. There's fewer things. I, I'm not going to go into the whole details of why that is sort of a, a half bit of a job. But I got recently, and uh, where is it here? I got something that I can't actually say as a pick because you can't buy it right now because the guy that made it stopped making them. <laughs> uh, maybe I can convince him to do another run of them. But it is, uh, it's an adapter because this, that 3D lens doesn't have a filter thread on it. It's just not mm -hmm. designed in that way. So this is a 3D printed little thing that sandwiches onto the, the front of the, the, the lens and it gives me a filter thread around nice. the outside, which is absolutely fantastic. And why? Well, I can attach a close-up filter to that. And there are a lot of very good achromatic close-up filters. i got to get one the right size to, to, to make that fit. But um, I have one that I've been testing a little bit here um, from ProMaster. And it's the ProMaster 5D close-up lens. And close-up lenses, look at that, uh, Joseph. You can see my eyeball real big right now. And nobody else but Joseph can see this. Um, but uh, it's a very high quality uh, for the price. You don't have to get... Uh, a 77 millimeter filter thread one. They, they make them in all sizes. Uh, this is the biggest, and I typically get filters in the biggest size, and then I can just keep them all the same size and adapt as needed. It's 150 bucks US for the biggest, but the price goes down considerably when you go for smaller sizes. An achromatic close-up lens is what you want. There's a number of people that make them, uh, including Canon made their uh, 500D, which was quite common, um, but they stopped making them in the big size. Uh, you also have the, um, uh, oh, what is the super tiny ones that I, I can't remember off the top of my head. I got a whole bag full of these things, hmm. um, but none of them uh, really match the quality and the size of this for the price. So 150 bucks for the biggest size. They make them in smaller ones. It's really high quality, and I'm going to adapt that so my Panasonic 3D lens that whoever made it wants to forget it exists, but I still love it. Uh, I'm going to take that and put it together and do some 3D macro work with a properly sized stereo window. And I'm going to be the only person on the planet to be doing that. And I'm going to be happy about it. Uh, and that's, that's my pick of the week. I love it. So your, your pick is utterly unique to you and to your workflow. So I don't know why I picked it to share that with anybody else because nobody else is going to care. Uh, that's funny. That's awesome, though. Well, I look forward to seeing the results of that. Now, for that kind of stereoscopic image, will you need – how do you view that? How would I view that? 
So there's a number of ways to view 3D. Uh, you can grab a pair of red, blue anaglyph glasses if I put it in the right format so that you can uh, mm -hmm. view it that way, although that's it's not ideal. Um, if you, if you can cross your eyes, you can do a cross view and see it really, really high detailed uh, in that methodology, but okay. only about 50% of the people can. Uh, and, uh, and, and even if you can, if you're in that percentage of the population, uh, you might have to train your eyes for a little while before it actually sinks in. Um, there are glassless 3D displays now. Uh, I have one, a tablet called the Loom Pad, and I can load in 3D images on there, and I can show them to people, and they freak out because they're seeing things in 3D on a 2D <laughs> display. And, uh, it's, it's actually a bit unnerving if people don't expect it. But, uh, so there is that technology to some degree. Um, but, you know, antique stereoscopes, going back 150 years or more, you can pick those up on eBay uh, for 40 or 50 bucks for one that's fully functional. Uh, and you can print your own stereo views in there. And it is so much fun. I play around with this stuff a lot. And I've even made really beautifully detailed stereo views that have custom uh, frames on them. And, and I just make them into little pieces of artwork themselves for those antique viewers. Nice. Um, and uh, so that's, that's what you awesome. can do uh, okay. with that. Very cool. What do you got for me? Very cool. Well, I'm going to go back to something we talked about before, the BGH-1. It's, uh, and I know this is a photo show and this is more video camera, but I think we can cross the cross the streams here a little bit. Of course. Uh, the BGH-1, I, I want to tell you why I'm enjoying it so much. And this is not, okay, obviously I'm still a Panasonic ambassador, so it's a little bit of ambassadorship going on here. But I do really enjoy this camera. And I'll tell you why. The way I've got this hooked up right now, I'm actually using it, what, again, your audience can't see me, but you can see me on it's that camera. It's operating as a webcam, which most of the these newer Lumix cameras can do now as well. But it has simultaneous HDI, HDMI and SDI outputs, which can be run at different resolutions. And for example, the way I have it set up right now, it is the camera set to 4K log. I have a LUT, a custom LUT loaded into the camera. The HDMI out is 4K log without the LUT applied to it. And that 4K unlutted stream is going straight into my computer. I've got a capture card in the computer so that I can capture video directly into there. So if I'm doing a screencast recording and I want to have the best quality for the recording, I can pull that. Simultaneously, 1080p is going out over the SDI signal with a LUT added to it. And that is what is feeding into my mixer for using for webcam shows or whatever, anything I'm doing live. And so I've got both signals simultaneously going through there, which is super awesome. And I can control all of that from the computer instead of going around behind the camera, making settings changes, coming back to the computer. It's all controllable from the desktop as I'm looking at, as the camera's looking at me, I can make changes through the desktop. Doing things like setting white balance by clicking on the white card on your screen is pretty cool. Oh, that's cool. That is, yeah, that's I, pretty you're, slick. You're making me really, really want a BGH1. <laughs> uh, I, and I wanted one at the beginning of this call, too. Right, Because I'm, yeah. I'm still using a Logitech C930 webcam, um, which, I mean, it's okay, but it's not fantastic. And in right. fact, whenever I start it up, the exposure is always way wrong. Right. And then I've got to fire up the software and adjust it back down to like a minus six level, and then that's fine until for whatever reason, Zoom or name the conferencing program decides to restart it and I'm in the middle of talking and it just goes oh, super, no. super bright again and I don't even realize it and nobody like everybody's being polite and they're not saying anything <laughs> uh, 
It's it's a big annoyance, and yeah. so I am looking to upgrade. And I'm not just going to get another webcam at this point. I yeah. mean, I see how good uh, the, uh, the the camera replacements are that let you know I can throw on a good quality Micro Four Thirds lens and so on. Um, yeah, you might you might have sold me one, good. Uh, Joseph. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. No, it's a, it's a great camera. It's exciting. Yeah, love it. Love it, love it. All right, and one final thing before before we go. Uh, I have in my hands, you might even be able to hear this if I flip through pages. I'm not <laughs> sure that's coming through on the microphone, but this is a really good sound for me. This is the sound. This is the sound of the content proof of my upcoming macro photography book. It's, it's a copy of the book in my hands. It's not the one off the press. It's the one to make sure everything reads and flows perfectly in a physical form and... Uh, 87,000 words later, that book is complete. <laughs> and I'm hoping that tomorrow I get to uh, uh, send a note to the press saying, yeah, we're good to go. Nice. Because uh, I, I, I can't, you know, I've gone through this. It's getting a little dog-eared in the corners. Uh, I can't find any other flaws within this other than the ones that I've already fixed. So um, for those of you waiting for my upcoming book, wait not much longer. I, I don't know what the press <laughs> schedule is going to be like. As soon as I say go, then they have to schedule it in. But um, uh, it is it's such a weight off my shoulders to say, nice. hey, that's done. And it's the best thing that I've ever produced in my professional career. Uh, so thank you to everybody that supported that. Very cool. Very cool. Looking forward to seeing that. And thank you for being on the show again, Joseph. We'll have to have you back on again soon. Anytime. Um, whenever there's uh, some uh, something big from Panasonic to dig into, I'd love to have you on. to Because I know that you sink your teeth into it often before it becomes public knowledge. Mm -hmm. So uh, you are uh, sort of the go-to uh, knowledge base for a lot of that stuff. I'm thrilled to have you on. Hopefully we can do that again. Um, and for everybody listening, thank you so much for being a part of this. And now, I mean, I, I still want to give our classic tagline, the majority of us still haven't been vaccinated yet. So it is still going to be, it's time to stay in and shoot. <laughs>